Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Hope you've been having a great week and a great Advent season thus far. As you can see, we've changed our scenery a bit and we're being a little more intentionally festive and Christmassy. Um, This morning I want to continue in our Advent series and I want to look at the third of our four Advent words. And this morning's word is hope. Try to think about the last time you used the word hope in a sentence. What did you refer to when you were talking about hope? Uh, What was the context? What were you hoping for? And what was the attitude with which you spoke about that hope? You know, the word hope is a lot like the word love. It covers a wide range of intensities and depths. Think about the way we use the word love. We say things like, I love pizza and I love my wife. And obviously, I mean both of them, but it represents a wide range of depth of meaning. Uh, That's the same thing with hope. Sometimes what we hope for is actually kind of casual. Maybe you'll say something like, I hope the movie's not sold out, or I hope I make my connecting flight. Now, if you think about it, that I would call those lowercase hopes. They are things that um, I sincerely wish would happen, but they are not life or death situations. Just I, I, it's probably closer to the word wish than anything else. And the Bible sometimes uses the word hope in exactly this way. It's not a life or death thing. It's just an expression of a deep yearning or desire for something that isn't life or death. Um, let me give you some examples. In Acts twenty four twenty six, Felix, the governor of Judea, was hoping that Paul would pay him a bribe. That's Acts twenty four twenty six. So he's he keeps bringing Paul into his presence, hoping eventually Paul will get the hint and pay him a bribe to let him go. In Romans fifteen twenty four, Paul, writing to Christians in Rome, says to them, "I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain." and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And in his third epistle, uh, Third John, in the 14th verse, the Apostle John says, and he's writing this whole epistle to his friend Gaius, he says, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. By the way, that last one I think would be a great verse to sign off all your emails during this COVID pandemic, don't you think? I hope to see you soon. And we will talk face to face. Now that's a legitimate use of the word hope. It's not a life or death thing, but it is expressing more than just passing desire. I really do hope this happens. But if we don't get what we want with these lowercase hopes, we're disappointed, but we'll live. But sometimes what we hope for is something much more serious, much more weighty. And these are serious hopes with very high stakes. They're closer to needs than wishes, aren't they? Things that if they don't happen, we're not going to be that okay. I'd call these uppercase hopes. And if we don't get these particular kinds of hopes to come true, we'll be devastated. Now, you might not literally die, but it's not as as casual as, oh, darn, the movie was sold out, or I missed my connecting flight. These are things that will undo us at some deep level. And so we call these uppercase hope. Now, whether it's a lowercase hope or an uppercase hope, 
we as human beings usually don't even start hoping for anything until we've finished doing everything that's in our power to do. So hope kicks in once we've exhausted every resource and applied every bit of control that we have available to us to our situation. So even something as casual as a movie ticket, we've tried to leave our house on time, we've tried to speed through every, every um, make every green light, whatever we, we've done everything possible, and yet we might pull up to the theater and see a line stretching around the building. So we only start hoping after we've done all that we possibly can do. And it leaves us then, hope leaves us in a place of waiting and dependence on the power and control of another. It's a pretty powerless place to be. And when we're in that place of waiting, when we're forced to hope, it exposes some real deep truth about who we are as people and how we feel, how confident we feel about God and His place in our lives. Or maybe if we're even more honest, it reveals a lot about how confident we are about the way God feels towards us. And I've observed that sometimes hope can be spoken in a hopeless way. And if you ever said anything like, I hope you know what you're doing, or I hope you remember our anniversary this year, it's as if you're saying hope, but what you're really saying is, I wish, but I don't really expect. Now, I might call this air quotes hope. I hope that you know what you're doing, but what we're really saying is, I don't think you do. And why, why do we have this air quote kind of hope sometimes? Why, why do we speak hope sometimes in a hopeless way? It might be just that we're pessimists and we always see the glass as half empty, but probably it's more likely that it's based on past experience or current trends. If I'm dealing with somebody who has made lots of really foolish mistakes in the past, but they've been very confident about their mistakes, I might say to them, look, based on everything I've experienced of you and based on what I'm seeing right now, I'm not confident in my hope. I wish for you that it would work out, but I don't expect it to. Some people have characterized optimism as evidence-based hope. That to be an optimist, you've got to look at the evidence and say, there's something to support my ongoing hope. In, in this sense then, optimism and hope are a little different because optimism is more like a calculated projection. Optimism, it's been observed by somebody, is evidence-based hope. And that's very insightful because that's the way most of us deal with hope. Especially if you're a cautious person, you don't dare hope until the evidence lines up for you. But what do we do when there is no evidence at all that things are going to get better? What do you do when the things you're up against seem so permanent so powerful and unchanging that it seems foolish to hope at all. Well, I wonder then, how did someone like Martin Luther King Jr. deliver that speech, the I Have a Dream speech, with such force of conviction, such clarity in his eyes? He felt it. He, it's as if, as he had that dream, you listening to that speech could picture the America he was envisioning. And yet, how does he make a speech like that in the America of 1963, in the face of everything that black Americans were dealing with. Where does hope like that come from? Because that's very different from optimism 
which is evidence-based hope. Well, I'll give you a clue as to where that kind of hope comes from. Uh, If we look at the Book of Lamentations, at the time that the Book of Lamentations was written, and the authorship is not clearly stated in the book itself, but it's most likely the prophet Jeremiah who wrote the Book of Lamentations. And at that time, Israel was a divided kingdom, much like the United States before the Civil War, and some would argue much like the United States right now. Okay, And so you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, just like before the Civil War. The northern kingdom was ten tribes. And remember, Israel was twelve tribes. The northern kingdom was ten tribes, and they were called Israel, collectively. And then the southern kingdom was two tribes, and they were called Judah, collectively. At this time that the Book of Lamentations was written, the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen like 136 years before that to the Assyrian Empire. and The Assyrians were bad dudes, and it was not a good conquest. But then, at the time that the Book of Lamentations is being written, the southern kingdom is now falling to the Babylonian Empire. And this is about 136 years later, and the capital city of Jerusalem is in utter ruins. Every important building had been destroyed, burned to the ground, and it was a really devastating, depressing time. I mean, you remember what 9-11 felt like, and that was two buildings, very iconic buildings, but really two buildings that most Americans outside of New York almost never thought about. And yet those two buildings became incredibly important as a symbol of who we were as a country. Now imagine the most important city in your country is in utter ruins at the hands of another power. The, the writer of Lamentations wastes no time. Right from the first verse, he describes the context he's writing in. He says, Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. You know, I read a lot of books, a lot of fiction books, and and I also like to read poetry. If I read anything that began that way, I'd read the rest of it. It's a powerful, no-frills way to introduce the lament of his heart. And the thing is, what he's saying is that Jerusalem was more than a city, and this was more than just a military or political defeat. With Jerusalem burning, it was a physical representation of their true state. That This was God's judgment over them. Because Israel by that time had given in to so much immorality, so much rebellion and rejection of God, that this was God's way of saying, I can't let you go on. If you don't have a consequence, there's no limit to what you're going to do. And so this was God's judgment. And it represented at some level God's withdrawing His favor and protection from the nation of Israel. In Lamentations 2, verse 11, the writer not not only talks about what is happening around him, but what's happening inside of him because of it. He testifies, I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. You get that picture? He is drained empty. He has poured out his spirit in agony. And I don't know if you've ever gotten to that point where you've cried so much, you're trying to keep crying and there's nothing left. It's like there's nothing in there. It's empty. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, he writes verse, chapter 3, verse 17 in such a descriptive way. 
Look at how he puts it. I gave up on life altogether. I've forgotten what the good life is like. That's powerful. How do you hope when you can't even remember what good feels like? Have you ever been there? Are you there right now? Where it feels impossible to hope because you don't even remember what it felt like when life was good. This is a pretty bleak picture and the book of Lamentations is rightly named because it is a grieving, crying sob to God in response to real life. Where is the hope? Because right now, there is, the evidence of failure and defeat and the withdrawal of God is all around him. It's so visible to see. And yet, in chapter 3, these are some really familiar, well-known verses to us. Um, chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. Look at what he says. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you see that? There's nothing in front of him that would lead him to believe this, and yet he chooses to believe not in what is happening, but in the character of God. That even though it looks like God has stopped loving, stopping merciful, he is stopping faithful, what he says is, that's not the God I know. Our God never stops loving. He never stops being merciful, and He is always faithful. So somehow, if there is any hope to be found, it will be found in the heart and character of my God. He can't find hope by looking at the evidence around Him, because if He's being honest, there is no reason to hope when He looks through His eyes. And yet it says so clearly, but... This I call to mind. In other words, when I started looking at different places, when I stopped looking at the ashes of ruin around me, and I began thinking back to the God who has revealed Himself to us, especially when it was at the height of our glory, when we were good with God, that's the God who is truly God. He hasn't changed. We changed a lot. We drifted from Him. We rejected Him. But that God of ours, is still the same. Even in this moment, when it seems like He's really mad at us, His heart for us remains unchanged. And that is where He chooses to anchor His hope. If you're a parent with older children, or if you're an older child, like a teenager or preteen, you're sitting on opposite sides of this relationship, aren't you? Because parents know, no matter how upset we are, how angry we get with our kids, how frustrated, never do we really stop loving, waiting for, being faithful, merciful to our kids, even when we have to be hard on them, even when we have to administer a consequence that we know is hard for them. We never stop loving them. But if you're on the kid's side of that, it doesn't always feel that way. It's easy to forget that that person coming down on you so hard has never stopped loving you. If you want to keep moving forward, you have to anchor your hope not on what is happening, but on who is around you and who is above you. The prophet Isaiah ministered to Israel, the northern kingdom, 
136 years earlier at the time when the Assyrian Empire was conquering them. The situation was similarly bleak and it was happening for exactly the same reason, that king after king in Israel had become wicked and the people of Israel no longer wanted to follow God. They decided to become righteous in their own eyes and so God in His judgment raised up the Assyrian Empire to go and conquer them in order to restrain their sin. Isaiah never ever held back from proclaiming God's judgment over Israel. But he also frequently communicated visions of hope about a king that would come who would be better than every king Israel had known. Where every human king had failed, this coming king, this Messiah, would be a better king. He would succeed where all others had failed. And Isaiah really gives some of the most vivid prophecies, visions about the Messiah to come. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, this is a really familiar passage for Christmas. He writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. These were really life-giving words, hopeful words for the Israelites to hear. Because it was a picture of a mighty conquering king who unlike David or Solomon, the greatest kings before them, their kingdoms ended. Everything that they had built came to ashes. But this king would remain in power and would never fade away. His kingdom would be forever. And Israel dreamt of a return to their place of glory a glory that would never fade, an unending administration. And this king would rise and he would conquer all the oppressors and enemies of God's people. In fact, Isaiah even throws in some geographical clues about where this coming king would rise. And there's a lot of detail here, but I want you to hang with me because this is an important point of the message. This is where we get to the hope that Jesus represents the hope of Christmas. In Isaiah 9, 1-2, he says that there was a time when he humbled the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. He's talking about the northern kingdom, the lands that are falling to the hands of the Assyrians. But he says, in the future, this same very region will be the place where the coming king will rise, Galilee of the nations, by the sea. In this very place of such utter darkness and despair, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That, that's really, uh, grammatically should read, will see a great light. It's a future vision that for those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's not just a geographical clue. It's a promise of the way God works that He doesn't just replace things, He redeems them. He doesn't say, you know what, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun are burned, they're, they're goners. It's damaged goods, we're going to start over in another place. Instead, He says, in this very region, in this very place, where everywhere you look, you see failure, you see defeat, you see shame and judgment. In this very place, a king will come, and he will lift your heads up again, and the lights will come back on in this place. I hope that's hope-giving 
For those of you who feel like in your present state, in your present relationships, in your present career, your life, it's done. It's ruined. There's nothing good that's going to come out of this. And what God says to you is what He said to Israel. In this very place, the lights can come back on. It doesn't have to be a new place. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew records that when Jesus begins His public ministry, look what He does. As soon as He hears that John the Baptist, His cousin, had been put in prison, He withdrew and journeyed to Galilee. And He left Nazareth and went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. And he it's so explicit. Matthew says, He did this so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In fact, in the very next two verses, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, the verses we just read. And what all this taken together is supposed to mean is that this promise that was given by the prophet Isaiah, that in this very land, a new king would come and the lights would turn back on in a place of utter darkness. That promise is now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That the baby, the shepherds, and the angels greeted the wise men came to honor on that first Christmas morning. That, that Christmas signaled the arrival of the king that Isaiah had foretold. It was Matthew's way of saying, make no mistake, all Israel has held its breath for so long waiting, and the wait is over. The darkness is going to go, and the lights are coming back on. But take a step back, just for a second, and look at the bigger picture. Because Isaiah gave that prophetic vision in 722 B.C. So for over 700 years after that clear, compelling vision of the coming king had been given, Israel had fallen under the oppressive rule of one empire after another. After the Syrians, it was the Babylonians. After the Babylonians, it was the Medo-Persian Empire. After them, it was Alexander Great and the Greek Empire. And after that, by the time of Jesus, it had been the Roman Empire. One large major power after another. The kinds of empires that Israel dreamt of becoming, that Israel had heard the promise they would become, these empires marched in one after another and oppressed God's people. 722 years waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. This is the tension we so often live with as Christ followers when we're trying to believe in and hope in the promises of God. Because God doesn't lie, He does keep His promises, but so often He doesn't keep them when we want, and He doesn't fulfill them how we expect. When Jesus came, the great hope for everyone around Him, including His inner circle, was that finally He would throw off the oppressive rule of Rome. And yet what they watched in growing confusion was that for three years, this man who was the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision walked around and preached that the kingdom of God had finally arrived, but he did nothing whatsoever to threaten Rome. He healed sick people. He fed hungry people. He relieved people of demon possession. He talked about love 
and forgiveness and kindness. And he kept predicting that someday soon he would die. And they couldn't understand what this was about. If he was supposed to come and throw off the oppressors of God's people and fight their enemies and defeat them, he wasn't doing a very good job. If this was the way God was going to keep the promise, it wasn't very encouraging for most of the people around Jesus. And yet, God didn't fail. He wasn't failing to keep His promise. He was just keeping it differently than any of us would have expected. He was fighting the oppressor and the enemy of God's people. It was just not the enemy that we identified. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes, but thank God, because He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The enemy that Jesus had come to conquer was not yet one more in a long, unending string of political and military empires. It was the greatest enemy humanity had ever faced. It was sin and it was death. Apart from those two things, it really wouldn't matter who was running the government. If there was no sin and no death and everyone worked together in wholeness and shalom peace, it really wouldn't matter who sat in the head office, because humanity would just work. The greatest enemy was never who was in power. It was the fact that sin and death had such a tight grip over the human race. About 20 years ago, I read a really powerful sermon by a pastor named James Van Thalen. He was 33 years old, and he was two years into a new pastorate at a church in Rochester, New York. And he was diagnosed at that time, very young age, 33, with a rare and aggressive form of cancer. He had to step away from his work as a pastor for seven months. Uh, he went, went through one surgery after another to really aggressive chemotherapy. And after seven months, he was finally strong enough to return to the pulpit for a very brief time. And the, the sermon I read was his first sermon back from that ordeal. One part of his sermon particularly stood out to me, and I want to read that for you right now. This truth has come home to me as I've been thinking about what it will mean to die. The same friends I enjoy now will get together a year and three years and 20 years from now, and I will not be there, not even in the conversation. Life will go on. In this church, you will call a new minister with new gifts and a new future, and eventually I'll fade from your mind and memory. I understand. Same thing has happened to my own memories of others. The reason that stood out to me so much was that the nearness of death, his own death, had given him a clarity and a perspective that he had never had before, and which at the time I read that sermon was a gift to me because it showed me something that I don't think I could get unless I had a brush with death myself. It reminded me that we ask God all the time to fight these little fights of the ups and downs of this fleeting, fragile life. God, help me with this. God, help me make that light. God, help me with this. And even the bigger things are still anchored to this fleeting, fragile blip of a worldly existence. And yet those are the times when we most employ hope, when we most cry out to God is for these little low-amplitude ups and downs over the journey of life. 
but he had come to the end of it and realized all his stories are about to be over. He's going to face God very soon, and there was not going to be any more tomorrows. And in that moment of clarity, what he realized was God was not there to fight all the little fights, though he cares about them. But the greatest gift, the most hope-giving thing that Jesus had done for him was he fought the biggest fight, the one he was right at the cusp of. And he fought the fight against sin and death so that when this life is over, no matter how it unfolded, he would stand before God and know that the greatest fight had been won, not by anything he'd done, but by what Jesus had done for him. This was hope. It's what Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy 1.10. Now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. And what did Jesus do? He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. You know, I don't wish for any of us the cancer that took Pastor Van Thalen's life. But I do crave for all of us to have the clarity and perspective that his ordeal gave him. I'll close with the closing words of his sermon, because I think they're powerful. It reminds us with such clarity of the real hope of Christmas. I'm dying. Maybe it will take longer instead of shorter. Maybe I'll preach for several months, maybe for a bit more. But I am dying. I know it. And I hate it, and I'm still frightened by it. But there is hope, unwavering hope. I have hope not in something I've done, some purity I've maintained, or some sermon I've written. I hope in God, the God who reaches out for an enemy, saves a sinner, dies for the weak. That's the gospel, and I can stake my life on it. I must, and so must you. Life is fleeting, and it's fragile. And in the short time between our birth and our death, there will be so many battles to fight. And it's okay to hope in God for those. He will come and fight for you and alongside of you in all the little ups and downs. But remember this, the great fight which He has never stopped fighting for you, which He has already achieved the victory, is the fight against sin and death. This is the hope we have that no matter how our lives unfold and how things go, that this very broken life that we so often lament is the life that God is saving and will redeem. This is hope. Not that life will end well, but that the God we love loves us back and that He will never stop loving us. He will never stop being merciful. He will never stop being faithful. And He will never stop fighting the greatest fight facing us. One day, like all others who have gone before us, you and I will come to the end of this life. And at that moment, we will know that our hope was not misplaced that the greatest battle of our lives was won and fought and given victory by Jesus Christ. This is the hope of Christmas. May it be your hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit now 
and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.